and welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, I want to talk about another event that I attended. I was recently doing a collaboration with UK Fast at their Cybersecurity 101 event, and there were some questions that came up and some content that was discussed that I figured I'd share with you guys. Now, the Cybersecurity 101 was effectively just a half-day event where some small and medium enterprises came down and talked to each other about security, and I think that's a, a really good thing when those events can take place, just to, to help each other out. There was a few speakers who spoke on things like web application firewalls, things like uh, distributed denial of service protection, DDoS protection. Um, But one of the things that I talked about was cybersecurity maturity assessments. And that's not necessarily an industry standardized thing, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about compliance and stuff. Please don't turn the podcast off already because I've said the awful word compliance. But effectively what I was trying to do was look at the question of where should companies start and how can companies be comfortable that they've covered a broad enough area of security to be safe? Now, we've talked about a lot of things on this podcast, certainly things like penetration testing and penetration testing is great and you should all buy one, I say as a penetration tester, but there's certainly a lot more to security that should be considered. And for organizations who are worrying about that kind of thing, I just wanted to put some notes together. I think when companies start looking at the the basics of security, somewhere that they can start as effectively a checklist of things to work through, one of the compelling things to look at is the cyber essentials. I don't think I've ever mentioned cyber essentials on this podcast before. For my sins, I am in fact a cyber essentials assessor. Now, if you haven't come across cyber essentials before because it's not directly relevant to your uh, field, it is a good thing to check out. And if you work through the cyber essentials and and feel that it's uh, insufficient for your needs, then that's still a good thing. It's still worth looking at that as a framework to see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, to have a little bit of a thought experiment about why it might be weak for you. But cyber essentials is effectively a method that organizations can go through to demonstrate a basic cyber hygiene. Oh God, I can't believe I'm saying things like that. What do I mean by basic cyber hygiene? effectively just um, a look at an organization's security to ensure that they are covering the basics. There's two forms of cyber essentials, the cyber essentials and the cyber essentials plus. I will refer to them as basic and plus just for the sake of uh, you knowing which one I'm talking about. Basic is very basic, believe it or not. A self-assessment questionnaire reviewed by an external certifying body. The the CREST uh, methodology for this also includes an external vulnerability scan of the company's um, assets. In short, The questionnaire is very simple. It's going to ask you things like, do you have a firewall? Have you changed default passwords on your network infrastructure? There's a lot of questions in there around um, anti-malware protection. Now that can either be things like traditional antivirus or it can be things like um, application whitelisting, those kinds of things. But how are you addressing uh, malicious software? And if you're a small organization and you're security team might really just be your IT team and your IT team might really just be one or two guys. It's a good thing to consider. It can be cost efficient, but in the very least, it's worth looking through. Now, instead of sitting here and showing you the benefits of Cyber Essentials and and talking about checkbox-based security, 
what I wanted to do was just highlight that that's a thing that exists that you should take a look at, but also try and expand out a little bit and, and talk about some of the other options, or more importantly, some of the areas of security that you should consider and some things that might be involved in that. So if you're a small organization and you want to make sure that you've at least thought about all areas of security, hopefully I'll help in this podcast. So um, the NCSC, through the NIS directive, came up with a cool thing, the Cyber Assessment Framework. That's a lot of acronyms and a lot of words you might not have heard about. But the NCSC, the National Cyber Security Center, came up with a framework for covering areas of security that critical national infrastructure should be concerned about. And whilst some of the things are relevant directly to critical national infrastructure, I do think that that framework was a good list of things to take a look at. So I'm going to use that as the basis for this conversation and talk to you about this cybersecurity maturity assessment thing, which is effectively just where you get a third party to come in and help you with your homework and help you look at the things that you should be considering. But I'm going to break security down into four key areas. Risk management, security protections, incident detection, and minimizing impact. Security protections is strongly where Cyber Essentials sits. It's also where things like penetration testing sits. Cyber Essentials does cover other aspects like some policy asks you if you have a starters and leavers policy and things like that, but it doesn't go into a great amount of detail of all of these areas. So just one at a time, I want to talk to you about preparing for an attack, protecting against an attack, and then how you deal with the aftermath if you are unlucky and do suffer uh, an attack, be it successful or be it just something that you have to deal with for the sake of due diligence. So starting at the beginning, risk management. What am I talking about here? Well, there's a lot of things considered by risk management, but I think one of the big things that companies should try and address in whatever way they can is security culture. Now, we've talked a lot about social engineering, and I talked in a previous podcast about um, how I don't believe a lot of staff members will challenge strangers. I talked about the psychological studies from the late 1960s and talked about bystander apathy and why people won't challenge strangers. But building a good security culture can minimize that. It can enable people to talk about security risks that they witness. One of the things that I like organizations to do is effectively build a culture where people talk about malicious emails that they see. Now, generic phishing attacks are very rarely targeted at your front and line staff. They might be targeted against key personnel. They might be whaling where they're trying to target directors and executives and things like that. But a lot of phishing attacks will just be sent on bulk. And if some of your staff members pick up on that, phishing attack, realize it's malicious, realize it's a scam, and then share that with other staff members, you can do effectively some on-the-job training. So building a security culture is a, a big thing that you should look at doing, helping staff members to understand that security is important and to start talking about it. There's a lot of different ways that companies uh, effectively try and achieve this. I've seen companies have up um, almost propaganda-style posters about how uh, attackers might be targeting the organization and don't share passwords and those kinds of things. But a thing that a lot of companies haven't necessarily considered is having a point of contact, having a security at email address or something like that. Something that staff members can just send a message to if they're unsure. Now, this might be they've received an email and they're unsure if it's a scam or not. It might be 
that they're really unsure about how to build good passwords. They keep hearing people tell them to use strong passwords, but they're not confident about what makes it strong. And having a point of contact like that can kind of um, take the worry out of a staff member's uh, mind. If they go down to the IT department and start asking really basic questions, they might worry that they'll come away feeling a bit of an idiot because the IT gurus were laughing at them for not understanding the basics of security. But having some point of contact or some single representative that they can ask those silly questions to is important because it gets those silly questions answered. There's also things like security training. So you should have uh, cybersecurity awareness training for staff members. And I've talked about that before, so I won't mention it here. But another thing that comes under risk management is training for the board. Now, your security approach should be board-led in such that the strategic decisions should come down from the top. This solves some problems where the IT security team, nobody might pay them any attention because they're not that important to some staff members. But if the message is coming down from the very top of the organization that this is a thing they care about, more people are likely to to get involved and to do the right thing. So having a message of board-led security is important as well. I know that's a struggle for some organizations, especially where the board don't necessarily have a technical representative. If they don't have maybe a CISO, a chief information security officer, I'm going to do a podcast at some point about the role of the CISO. So keep your eye out for that one. I'm still working on it. I think it's something that uh, we need to talk about having a security representative on the board. But right now, how do we get the board involved in security? It's a case of just explaining the risks to them in a way that they'll understand. I saw a presentation recently by the former CEO of Lloyds of London. This was at InfoSecurity Europe that he attended last week. And one of the things that they talked about was the fact that sometimes board members don't understand the risks because they're used to talking about things in a business-orientated way as opposed to a technical security-orientated way. So some of getting your board involved can just be helping with the terminology, presenting things to them in terms of business risk as opposed to, you know, as opposed to the, the technical side of things. So that's the thing to consider. But security culture, security training, board-led security are definitely things that your organization should consider on the, the wider path to being more mature in terms of security. The second thing I mentioned was security protections. Now, hopefully we've talked a lot about security protections previously. We've talked about penetration testing and Every time I bring that word up, I recommend you get a pen test. But there's things that you can do yourselves. So there's vulnerability management programs. Yes, it's great to get a third party to come in, to get a consultant to come in and perform a penetration test or perform a security test because of this idea that you can't mark your own homework. And if you think you've done the best job in protecting your system, sometimes it's nice to get an outsider to come in and give that independent view. But there's a lot you can do internally as well. There are vulnerability scanners available. Vulnerability scanners, whilst not perfect solutions, I mentioned this in a previous podcast again, pen tests are human-led and therefore a little bit more intelligent and vulnerability scans are generally automated and therefore somewhat of a simplistic approach. They're not exclusive. You don't have to do one or the other. You could, for example, get a penetration tester to come in annually or at some regular frequency that you feel appropriate, and then run vulnerability scans more frequently. If you want to see an example of that, uh, the PCI DSS standard, the Payment Card Industries Data Security Standard, does consider things like that. So running 
penetration tests annually, but segmentation tests biannually and vulnerability scans quarterly, those kinds of things. So there's definitely a justification for that. But take a look for vulnerability scanners and see if they're appropriate for your organisation. One of the best things that I've seen vulnerability scanners do for organisations in my experience is just check that everything's working. I worked with one company, ironically, ironically actually as part of a cyber essentials assessment, but I was working with one organisation. One of the things I was there to check was that their patch management system was good. It should be a simple thing. Do a couple of vulnerability scans, make sure that systems are patched. If they're patched, we're good to go. And they were adamant, absolutely adamant, that all of their patches were installed immediately as soon as available. They didn't have any testing window or anything like that. Just a patch became available and they sent it out to the machine. And I scanned some of their machines and found a quite significant, and by significant I mean several years of missing patches. It turned out their patch management system was just broken. However, they were importing the scope, was missing some systems. So some systems weren't being patched. And that kind of thing, whilst embarrassing to them, I'm sure, can really easily be just tested in-house. Get a vulnerability scanner, scan some systems, and just make, make sure things are working as you'd expect. There's another risk as well in that area that vulnerability scanners can help with. A lot of companies build uh, their staff machines by gold images. The idea here being that they make one uh, image of a, of a machine, a standardized build, then they effectively duplicate that build and staff members are, are given copies of this gold image so that there is consistency across the network. And the problem with that is if a staff member works for your organization for a long time, maybe these things become inconsistent over time. Maybe that staff member's had, it, had some extra tools installed or an extra web browser. Or maybe you've improved the gold image but haven't redistributed it after the fact. And sometimes the consistency of uh, machines across a network isn't ideal. Vulnerability scanners can help with that as well. Also, there are sometimes common and default misconfigurations that people aren't necessarily aware of that vulnerability scanners can pick up on. Just simple things. Uh, I guess a good example would be um, SMB signing being disabled. Let's not get into the technicalities of what that means right now, but by default, SMB signing is disabled on all Windows machines within an Active Directory domain other than the domain controller. So by default, many of your machines have SMB signing disabled. That's a risk. And maybe you're not aware of what that is or what the risk is, but if you had a vulnerability scanner, it'd be very likely that it would pick up on that. And it'll give you a little description of why that's a problem. In short, for those that are curious and don't want to spend hours Googling it, SMB signing being disabled means that a man-in-the-middle attacker can modify connections en route, and that can generally allow for remote command execution and sometimes files to be stolen and that kind of thing. So it's a risk that should be considered, and if you can, SMB signing should be enabled. But my point being, there are some default misconfigurations that you just might not be aware of, and vulnerability scanners can be a cost-efficient way of you finding out about them. And penetration testing, of course. Segmentation testing, I mentioned that this is the idea of breaking your network down from it being a single flat network into smaller areas, smaller segments that either handle one type of trust, one level of trust, or maybe handle uh, one type of uh, traffic, making traffic filtering network management easier. So this might be something very simple, like you have one network for your servers, one network for your staff laptops that are connected to the physical network, one network for your staff laptops that are connected to the Wi-Fi, those kinds of things. 
And this level of segmentation effectively allows choke points in the network where you can apply more rigorous firewalling and very often some more rigorous uh, network monitoring. It's places that you can put your intrusion detection and intrusion prevention systems, those kinds of things. Segmentation is great and nowhere near as well applied as it should be. So I would strongly recommend that you take a look at your network and if everything is just within a single flat VLAN, it's probably very bad. Also take a look at the, the harder things to solve, things like the data plan and the management plan. When your IT department log into the servers, does that run on the same VLAN as your normal staff members' traffic? Very commonly it will. But if you can separate that data plan from that management plan, it would make the attacker's job of performing a man-in-the-middle attack against management traffic with the intention of compromising administrative usernames and passwords much harder. If I can't get to that traffic, it makes compromising it a lot harder. And there's other ways of achieving that. Things like cryptography, you know, encrypting those connections so that it's harder for an attacker. But hey, defense in depth. Cryptography is one approach. If you can segment as well, then that's even better. I think uh, another thing within security protection that a lot of companies are maybe have been working through recently is data management. Now, GDPR was a big thing. Don't worry, I'm not going to dwell on it, but it was a big thing that a lot of organizations were caught out by. One of those things was the way that you're handling personal data, the way that you're handling this kind of sensitive data. And I think a lot of companies, when they were working through their GDPR um, compliance work, if that's in fact the right term for legislation, they were finding that maybe they had data in places that they didn't want it to be or expect it to be. This can be simply things like the uh, network administrators naively presuming that all of the personal data was stored on the network share where it was supposed to be. And maybe staff members were doing things for the sake of convenience, like storing personal data on their desktops. I think every network administrator has probably come across that at some point. And that makes GDPR compliance more difficult. So data management is another thing to consider within security protection. So whilst we've talked about a lot of these things already, I've certainly talked about pen testing and physical access testing and social engineering. Maybe there's other things in that area that you should consider as well. I guess I should say something about user accounts as well. Cyber Essentials would, uh, would highlight the fact that you should have a starters and leavers policy. This is effectively when a member of staff leaves the company, for whatever reason that they leave the company, you should restrict their access. You should have a process for doing that. Staff members very often don't have just a single user account that grants them access to everything. Maybe they've got a user account, a separate email account, a separate account for the HR system, a separate account for the VPN. And maybe you have to isolate all of these in turn. And the best way to make sure you're doing that is to have a process for doing that. But it's a thing to consider. Whilst I've been running these cybersecurity maturity assessments with organizations, when we work through risk assessment and security protections, most companies get to this point where they say, you know what, we've considered most of this. You know, we've considered training, we've considered pen testing, and they're very mature in those areas. But the two areas, in my experience, that the companies that I work with are least mature, as in have put in the least effort, have the least investment, are least confident in their abilities, incident detection and minimizing impact. So let's talk a little bit about those two. First of all, incident detection. What is this? This is your organization's ability to determine that something went wrong. And this can be a lot harder than you might necessarily think it is. 
Um, I guess a good example there that's often missed by organizations monitoring systems would be if a staff member's laptop is compromised, and let's not worry about how it's compromised, but a, a sensible option might be something like a phishing attack. Attackers using that one staff machine as a foothold. Or hell, maybe it's the staff member themselves doing some malicious insider th threats. Um, if that staff machine starts doing port scans of other staff machines, that should be a really obvious sign that that machine might be compromised. Port scan activity is generally fairly detectable through intrusion detection systems. It doesn't look like standard traffic. Certainly if they're hitting a large number of ports where those ports are not frequently used, and if they're hitting them in a small amount of time. Port scans can be generally very easy to detect, but a lot of companies don't have monitoring at that layer. That's the access layer where staff machines all, all plug in. A lot of organizations don't have the monitoring there. So maybe they would be able to detect it if a staff member machine did a port scan of the servers. But if they're doing port scans of each other, maybe they wouldn't be able to detect that. Maybe you wouldn't be able to detect malicious traffic, which is, whilst not um, malicious in nature, is possibly anomalous to your network. Maybe it's non-standard and could be an indicator of compromise if it's ever seen. A good example of that would be link local multicast name resolution. Link local multicast name resolution. Difficult one. LLMNR. LLMNR is another default weakness. Now, if you've never come across LLMNR before, it's uh, effectively a fallback to DNS. I won't dwell on the specifics of that, but in short, it's generally aware that a penetration tester will be able to perform a man-in-the-middle attack. We might abuse LLMNR traffic between client machines with the intention of stealing another user's password. If I were to plug my laptop into your network, I might abuse LLMNR, or I guess uh, leverage is a better word, to start capturing user hashes. That itself should also be very detectable. If you don't have any systems that use LLMNR, and in fairness, you probably don't, you probably use the more common alternative DNS, then a large amount of LLMNR requests in a short period of time or gratuitous responses for LLMNR, um, that is just an increase in traffic that might be indicative of an attacker using an attacking tool like Metasploit or using an attacking tool like uh, Responder, for example, two tools that can be used for exploiting this vulnerability. You might be able to detect that with an intrusion detection system. You certainly won't be able to detect that if you don't have a monitoring implant at that access layer. So it's a thing to consider. However you want to achieve that, you could achieve that through span ports. Those are effectively network monitoring ports on your access layer switches. That is duplicating the traffic so that you can take a look to see if there's malicious traffic involved. Or through something like segmentation testing that we talked about earlier. But monitoring what client devices are up to, it's pretty important. And in my experience, a lot of companies aren't doing it so well. That leads into alert generation. If you see machines misbehaving, machines uh, talking to each other that shouldn't be talking to each other, utilizing protocols that they shouldn't be utilizing, or just an increase in traffic which is unusual for your network, you can act on that. And that's part of incident detection. I guess at some point I'll have to talk about logs. A lot of companies are logging things, logging some things. And when I talk to companies through things like these maturity assessments, um, you very often start with the question of, are you logging system events? And most companies will say, yes, of, of course we're logging system events. And it's like, okay, 
what events are you logging, where are you storing them, and how long are you storing them for? And suddenly their responses are less confident. Maybe they're not sure that they're logging all the right things. Maybe they're not sure that if they're holding logs for long enough. And I think from my point of view as a penetration tester, are they holding on to the right information and then protecting it? Logs sometimes contain sensitive data. A really silly example of this would be where a staff member goes to log into a system, supplies a username and password, but forgets to hit the tab key or forgets to click on the password box before typing their password. And therefore, the system just receives one single string of the username and password combined together. And that might be logged. Some of the logs might log something like, you know, uh, incorrect username and then the username and password combination. That's bad. If you're logging passwords, that's obviously bad. It's worse if those logs are available or not protected in some way. Another thing to consider with log protection would be um, if I am to launch an attack and that attack is detected in some way, am I able to just modify the logs? If you're just holding logs on the server, the server itself that I am attacking, and I can fully compromise that server, maybe I can clear out the logs myself. And clearing out might be completely erasing, which could in itself be an indicator of compromise. Or it might be log carving. Log carving is effectively the attempt of an attacker to just remove the log entries relevant to their attack. So just hide themselves from the logs. And then, of course, we have rootkits and things. But the point being, if you're, if you're not protecting those logs from people reading them who shouldn't read them and people modifying them who shouldn't modify them, then... To be honest, those logs could, in some cases, be pretty useless. Also, I guess there's a thing here in terms of monitoring capability. So monitoring capability might be, um, are you empowering staff members to be technically aware of risks? If you go into your IT security team and say, who can talk to me about LLMNR and SMB signing, and nobody puts their hand up, maybe the monitoring capability has in the technical team is somewhat deficient. Those are just two random examples. I'm sure if you dug for long enough, there would be something that they don't know. Of course, we're all human. But it's a thing as an organization to consider. If you have a security team in charge of monitoring for threats, are they getting regular training? Are they performing on the job training? Are they doing job sharing so that they can learn from each other? And if they're not, and I know a lot of companies, they don't because they worry that if any of the security team ever have time off for any reason, then their security stances may be less than it would be. It's a thing you need to worry about too. There's no point working your IT security team to the bone if they're not getting training and development time themselves. So, hey, it's a thing to consider. And I guess we could build this up into things like threat intelligence. I don't think I've talked about threat intelligence much on this podcast before. It covers a lot of different things, but just for those who've never heard that term before, effectively getting a feed of information about the attackers who are likely to target your organization, and that's generally by sector, which hacking groups are likely to target your sector, and what are those hacking groups' capabilities? This can lead into threat monitoring, the effect of looking at the threat actors who are likely to target you, their capabilities, and then how that should impact your uh, stance as an organization. If there are certain groups of attackers who are unlikely to target your organization, Investing huge portions of your budget and protecting against that group is maybe not the best use of funds. So yeah, incident detection, it's a lot more than logs. Alert generation, automatic monitoring, log generation, and then 
training the team and making sure that you're informed of the things that the attackers are likely to do. And then finally, minimizing impact. So the, the fourth of the four things that I said to cover a broader view of security. This is things like response testing, response planning, root cause analysis, backups. I mentioned backups a couple of times on this podcast, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it with, of course you should do backups. Hopefully everyone is doing backups, but test them as well. How frequently you should test them is up to you, but as frequently as possible. If you think you have a backup and it turns out you don't because it didn't work right or its integrity is compromised in somewhere, you don't have a backup and that's a bad situation to be in. But I think for minimizing impact, the thing to highlight is just the range of things that you should consider in your incident response plan. So this can be things like cyber attacks, of course, we'll talk about those in a second, but it can just be things like floods and fires. What if your IT team all gets sick? How would that impact your business? Is there any ways that you can mitigate that risk of everyone getting the flu and taking two weeks off? But in terms of cyber attacks, I think organizations are maybe concentrating very strongly on the things that we read in the news. So a lot of organizations are worrying a great deal about ransomware, for example. There's other attacks. I think my best example of this was a long time ago now, in what, 2014 or something. I am... Um, I worked with an organization and they were, they contacted the company they worked for at the time and, and asked us to check, are they vulnerable to Heartbleed? Now you can work out when this was because Heartbleed's old school now, but at the time, Heartbleed was a new threat and everyone was worrying about it. It was what the newspapers were talking about. They contacted our organization. They said, can you test our systems for Heartbleed? And we said, of course, we can do a penetration test and we can find any of those vulnerabilities quite simply. Or maybe a vulnerability scan might be a, a faster, more cost-efficient way of achieving the same thing. But either way, we can do a security test and, and find the answer for you. And we spent a little time looking and eventually we found out that this organization wasn't vulnerable to Heartbleed, but they had SQL injection instead. Now, hopefully everyone's aware, I've talked about SQL injection before. It's a pretty serious vulnerability. In the OWASP top 10, it's in the number one place. Injections, highest class against the OWASP top 10. So injection vulnerabilities, take my word for it. Pretty serious things. And I remember delivering this news to this company and saying, okay, good news and bad news. You don't have Heartbleed, but you have got SQL injection. And I remember the guy's relieved face as he said, oh, thank God. We don't have Heartbleed. We don't need to worry. And that certainly wasn't the case. SQL injection is a very high impact vulnerability, which is very trivial to exploit. But that organization were concentrating too much on headlines, too much on the, the news media's vulnerabilities that we should worry about. That's not the wrong thing to do in terms of being aware of those things. If a new vulnerability comes out and the newspapers are talking about it, then you should make sure that you're informed of what that vulnerability is. But just because a new vulnerability came out, because a new zero day was discovered, doesn't mean we can forget about all of the old vulnerabilities. Yeah, SQL injection's been out since 1998. Still a risk. And if your company has it, then it's still a, a thing to worry about. So for minimizing impact, we have response planning. And that would be, as I mentioned, looking through what kind of attacks you're likely to fall foul of. And yes, being prepared for a ransomware attack, being prepared for a website defacement, being prepared for... Hopefully a day that'll never come, but finding out that personal information has been leaked, and then you have to do the whole vulnerability disclosure thing. 
the more issues that you can plan for, the better. Somebody recently said to me, um, no plan ever survived contact with the enemy, but no battle was ever won without a plan. And I think that's really good in that sense that, um, yeah, if you plan for an incident, it's very unlikely that the, the incident will play out exactly like your plan. But if it can prepare you somewhat for some of the things that you should consider, then it's a great thing. Oh, in fact, we talked in the last podcast as well about um, complex attacks. So I guess I should just highlight that here as well for those who didn't listen to the last podcast. Uh, complex attacks, generally the idea that an attacker performs two attacks simultaneously where one is effectively a distraction. Your response plan should consider those things too. So don't just walk through it and, and have effectively a, a, a flow chart that goes, is it ransomware? Is it defacement? Is it data disclosure? Consider that two things might happen at the same time. So a good example of that might be where an attacker performs a denial of service attack to disrupt a system so that your IT team stand up and start dealing with that disruption so that they can uh, exfiltrate data from a different system. Or it might be where multiple attackers target the organization at the same time. I believe this happened to TalkTalk Talk with their 2015 breach. That was a SQL injection attack where some attackers shared between themselves information that this vulnerability existed. And that ultimately meant that several different attackers, possibly with different motives, attacked the system at, at different times. And that can complicate matters when you're trying to deal with a breach. Uh, effectively, what I'm saying here is uh, if a vulnerability exists, it's not necessarily true that only one attacker has found that vulnerability. It would be poor luck if they both attack you at the same time, but it's possible, so it's a thing you should consider. And root cause analysis. I think this is one of those things that often gets forgotten. Um, I work with a lot of companies who get hit by ransomware attacks. And this sucks that in 2019 we're still dealing with ransomware. Ransomware is very old. Oh, first ransomware that we know of. Maybe the AIDS Trojan of 1989, distributed on physical floppy disks. It's a pretty old one. Ransomware's been around for a long time. 1989 is a long time ago. But organizations getting hit in 2019 by ransomware often bring us in for a little bit of assistance and say, hey, we've been hit by ransomware. Can you come and help us out? And the, the organizations that we work with are very often adamantly focused on recovering, as in they want to flatten the, the machine that has been infected, that is, erase the machine that's been infected, rebuild it with a new clean gold image, get it back out to the staff members so that they can go back to business as usual as, as quickly as possible. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Wanting to return to business as usual is important. I think a lot of uh, staff members, a lot of uh, security response teams, maybe forget about root cause analysis because it's the less uh, romanticized part of response. But how did that machine get impacted? And how are you sure that is not uh, just one of several machines that are impacted. In fact, we saw that with NotPetya. If you remember that attack from, what was that, 2017 now, the middle of 2017? Um, one of the companies that I was working with through, through the NotPetya breach uh, had some intrusion detection system alerts, and it was effectively, uh, it was their IPS, or intrusion prevention system, had told them that it had successfully blocked an attack. And they sat there proud. They'd clearly made the right product decision that sat down for a long time trying to work out which IPS was best and they decided on this one and it had blocked an attack successfully. So investment well spent. They then didn't investigate 
what was attacking them or how it was attacking them. And the critical point for that particular breach was it was an internal attack. What actually happened was one of the machines had been infected and there was some internal network propagation there. But maybe they could have uh, reacted certainly faster if they had thought about that. Getting an attack successfully blocked or finding that a machine has been infected with ransomware and then recovering that machine is, you know, a good thing. But it's not necessarily the end of the story. So, you know, always remember to go back to root cause analysis and work out how did this happen and how can we prevent it in the future. And another thing to consider just before I wrap this up is lessons learned. Once you've walked through the whole process, you've done the security protection, you've detected an attack, you've recovered from the attack, you've done your root cause analysis. Lessons learned can just be a simple view back at the steps that you took to say, could we have done anything better? Was our response fast enough? Was there something that maybe you hadn't considered in your response plan that you'd managed to deal with in an ad hoc approach and it paid off and worked, but maybe that you'd want to go back and take another look at? Maybe you'd want to do a couple of response tests, some war games or something like that to see if you can improve that efficiency in that area. How did disclosure go? Did you disclose fast enough? Were there any problems there? So yeah, lessons learned is another thing to consider. And that's pretty much it. I wanted to talk a little bit about Cyber Essentials, but not to dwell too much on it. If you haven't heard of Cyber Essentials, take a look at it. It's a good first step if just basic cyber hygiene is the thing that you think you need first. But building up from that, security is much broader than system protections. And there's a lot of other things to consider. And hopefully I've given you uh, quite the list of things to take a look at. We'll be breaking some of those down in the in future podcasts. So, you know, keep an eye out for those. Maybe uh, follow us on social media if you haven't done so already and you'll spot some of the other podcasts that we do. But that is it. Cybersecurity maturity assessments are a thing that you should consider as an organization if you're curious as to whether you're covering all of your bases and if you're investing in the right areas. I have a question for you guys, though. Is there anything that I missed? I tried to give a really broad view of security, but maybe just by doing these things from some simple notes, I missed a critical area of security. If I did, let us know in the comment section or drop us a tweet. What do you think I should have talked about when I talk about security maturity? What areas of security did I miss? If it's something good, maybe I'll get its own podcast. Thank you.